We are starting a new series today called The Daniel Project, Wise Living in a Secular Culture. And I want to begin uh, this morning by telling you a story uh, about one of my favorite uh, heroes. His name is Jake Oliver. And it was a Saturday, 8 a.m. Jake was on his way to his regular five days a week appointment. And Jake was only 12 years old. But for four straight years, he had kept this appointment five days a week. This particular morning was special because Jake was walking to his appointment all by himself, and he had with him a brand new cell phone that he had paid for with his his own money. As he walked, a man jumped out of some bushes and tried to grab that new cell phone, and and he swung and tried to punch this 12-year-old boy right in the face. Jake was getting mugged. The police later asked him, were you scared? He said, no. And this is the key. He said, my training kicked in. You see, what this mugger didn't realize was that he was attempting to mug the national 11-year-old karate and kickboxing champion. (laughs) Jake said, well, I easily dodged the man's blow and I didn't want to attack him, but he was attacking me So I delivered a quick right hand into his nose and broke it. There was blood everywhere. Jake said he began to scream and ran away. And this is my favorite part of the news report. He he began to scream and ran away into his Ford Fiesta with a fake spoiler on it. I mean, isn't that typical of people that mug kids? Well, Jake was on his way to do what he'd done five days a week for four straight years to learn how to fight. And when life jumped out of the bushes to mug him, he didn't panic. He didn't shrink back. He just responded out of his training. Daniel, as we're going to see in his book, was a young man who got mugged by life. When he was just a teenager, everything in his world was turned upside down. And and this fall, we're going to be studying the story of what happened This life of Daniel's actually, and this is no exaggeration, is one of the greatest lives in all of world history. You're going to see that Daniel starts out the story we read as a 14 or 15-year-old POW, and he ends up achieving the pinnacle of success in in secular terms, uh, being a very influential leader. You know, you you will agree, I think, with me that we are living in a time when it just seems like all the values that that create a healthy society have been rejected, that things are being shaken, turned upside down. It's just kind of amazing. Over 2,500 years ago, the prophet Isaiah warned that a culture is always headed for collapse when it rejects God, rejects his truth, rejects his values. This is what he wrote. You are doomed if you call evil good and call good evil. You turn darkness into light and light into darkness. You make what is bitter sweet and what is sweet you make bitter you are doomed. You think you are wise, so very clever. Well, this actually happened to the nation of Israel. The nation had fallen into immorality, into injustice, into idolatry. Maybe that sounds familiar, making idols out of things that aren't God, treating people unjustly, rampant immorality. And God responded by sending many prophets like Isaiah. He sent men like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and they kept prophesying, kept predicting people, if we don't get our act together, we will lose our freedom. They warned the people that God's wrath was going to come. And in 605 BC, God 
kept his promise. God sent his wrath. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded Israel. Now, Babylon was the world superpower of its day. And Nebuchadnezzar came in, conquered Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, took the people as prisoners of war back to Babylon, kept them there for 70 years. It was a disaster. They lost their freedom because they did not pay attention to what God said. And the collapse of that culture shook everyone living in it. Around that time, Asaph the psalmist also wrote these words. God stands up to open heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the judges. How long will you judges refuse to listen to the evidence? How long will you shower special favors on the wicked? Give fair judgment to the poor man, the afflicted, the fatherless, the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless from the grasp of evil men. But you are so foolish and so ignorant because you are in darkness. And this is the phrase I want you to see. All the foundations of society are shaken to the core. Does that sound familiar? All the foundations of society are shaken to the core. Kind of sounds like today's news because it seems like like everything around us is being shaken today. The foundations of our economy, shaken. The way we've done government in our country for 200 years, shaken. Our freedom of speech and conscience and religion, shaken. Our, 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 our families shaken, our educational systems shaken, the foundations of truth and morality and ethics shaken. We are living in a time of great upheaval. But I'm not here, you need to know, to talk about a doom and gloom scenario because really that's not what Daniel is about. In spite of the terrible circumstances that surround Daniel's life, Daniel is actually a book of great hope. And Daniel is going to show us as we study it that no matter how bad the world gets, that even in the midst of destruction and cultural decay, God's people can live faithfully. God's people can know God's grace and a mercy in their lives. We're going to look today at Daniel chapter 1. And this opens by setting the scene for Daniel's life. And in this first chapter, we find some initial steps for surviving times of shaking. And I'm, I'm calling these initial steps, I'm titling this message, The Daniel Plan. And I know that has concerned some of you. You're kind of worried right now because lunch is approaching and you're getting hungry. But you need not to worry. There's gonna be nothing today about kale or, or broccoli or fat-free, flavor-free dieting for anybody, okay? That's not what this chapter is about. In fact, it's quite the contrary as we're gonna see in a few moments. What I want you to know is that like Jake Oliver, Daniel was a young man who had a plan. Daniel was prepared. Daniel had built some disciplines and some habits into his life that allowed him to not only survive, but to thrive in incredibly difficult times. So with that in mind, let's read chapter one. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's 21 verses. You can follow along in your copy of God's word, or you can look on the screen. Here's what is written. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, 
handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And this is the word of the Lord. Now this morning, three principles I want you to see that, that, that make up what I'm calling the Daniel plan as we work our way through this chapter. God's plan that we see in Daniel's life for Christ followers so that we can live wisely in a secular culture, even when we're exiles. Here's the first thing. Go ahead and write this down in your message notes. We accept God's sovereign faithfulness in exile. This is where we have to begin no matter what happens, we accept that God is in control. We, we accept that God will always be faithful. Now to capture Daniel's incredible life, I, I think it's important that we understand as much as we can how dark the scene is for Israel and for Daniel as this book opens. And so I'm gonna take a little bit of extra time here at this beginning point to flesh out the historical setting. And I just wanna let you know about that ahead of time so that you know, you won't get too worried, all right? We're going to be in point one longer than the next two points that are going to follow. So let not your hearts be troubled today. You will get to eat lunch at some point this afternoon. Now, as we get into the historical setting, I want to do something that I hope will give you uh, some real perspective on this. And I want to do that by helping you to see this through the lens of something we all are familiar with. And that is 
the events of 9-11. Just a few weeks ago, we had the 15th anniversary of 9-11, and, and maybe like some of you over that weekend, I watched some documentary footage just replaying the events of 9-11. There's really a lot of stuff out there. You, you can listen to conversations of air traffic controllers. You can listen to sobering voicemails left by people on the planes. You can listen to data from cockpit recorders, even transmitting instructions from Muslim terrorists. There's video of the two planes slamming into the respective towers. You can see pictures of United 93 in that field in Pennsylvania after it had apparently been uh, detoured from its mission to strike somewhere in the capital. You can hear the voice recorders on that flight capturing the violent, heroic struggles of the passengers with the terrorists, the screams, and then the nosedive, and then the crash into that field. Maybe, like some of you, I've watched videos that documented the, the dozens and dozens of people trapped in the towers who decided to jump to their deaths rather than to die in flames. And then there's the, the collapse of the towers, and then those testimonies that we hear from survivors, and, and then those accounts of the valiant rescue efforts by all of the, the amazing first responders. And when you watch and you hear and you see all those things again, thoughts and feelings come back, don't they? It's almost like you're living it again. You, you feel the grief, you feel the sorrow, you feel the anger. Maybe you're wondering, what in the world was God doing? Now, studying Daniel chapter one this week, I thought about 9-11. And, and maybe you can do a sort of thought experiment this morning. Maybe you can try to connect uh, some parts of these two separate events so that it'll help you understand something of what was going on. Here's the scenario I want to propose for you. What if the destruction of the Twin Towers, the hijacking of the planes, the attack on the Pentagon, all the loss of all the thousands of life, what if all that was coordinated with a massive kidnapping and relocation of American citizens to Iraq? What if some of those people will never see America again? What if some of those people who do see America again only get to see it after 70 years? What if it's you and, and you are now facing the unimaginable challenge of trying to put your life back together in the very country that destroyed yours? You're surrounded by people hostile to your way of life. They're speaking languages that you don't know. What would you do if you woke up, not in America, but in Iraq, and what would you do if you're 14 years old? See, all the thoughts and emotions that Americans generally have surrounding 9-11, they're the kinds of things that, that swirl in and around Daniel chapter 1. Now, with that in mind, how did Israel get there? Well, basically, it took them hundreds of years, <laughs> hundreds of years of rebellion against God, hundreds of years of idolatry and immorality, hundreds of years of social injustice, hundreds of years of God's prophets warning them that God's judgment and God's wrath is coming if they do not repent. And sometimes some people do turn back to God. And for some people in certain times, life does get better for a time. But always, always the nation eventually reverts to its sin. And God always keeps his promises. You know that, right? 
God always keeps his promises, even the ones that aren't really, really good. And finally, in 605, God does what he promised he would do. He brings his wrath. He brings his judgment. And it comes in the form of a conquering king who invades and ravages Israel. Here's how it happened historically. Before the invasion of Israel takes place earlier in that year, 605 B.C., one of world history's most significant military battles occurs, and it's called the the Battle of Carchemish. In that battle, two powerful nations in world history come to an end in one single battle. They're the nations of Assyria and Egypt, and Assyria and Egypt have joined forces uh, to fight against an army that is coming at them from across the Fertile Crescent, the, the army of the nation of Babylon. See, after Carchemish, Egypt falls and will never again be a significant player on the world stage. Assyria ceases to exist. And there's one man, one commander who's responsible for bringing these two nations to an end. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's from Babylon, which by the way, is modern day Iraq. Now in the same year, Shortly after this battle, apparently, Nebuchadnezzar's father dies, and that makes him the king of Babylon. And under his leadership in the decades that are ahead, Babylon grows into one of the most spectacular cities in all world history. Maybe you've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well, Nebuchadnezzar built the the hanging gardens. And like that empire that he built, Nebuchadnezzar is a man with no rival in the ancient world, the most powerful man in that time. Now, caught between Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to the east and Egypt to the west is this little, tiny, pretty insignificant nation of Judah that's on the decline. Nebuchadnezzar is on the way through and he doesn't really care a whole lot uh, about Judah, but he, he figures, on my way there, why not? I'll scoop this one up too. And so he conquers them. He invades, he conquers and, and different conquering regimes throughout history have different ways of dealing with the people they conquer. Uh, there have been some that just kill all the POWs off, kind of a radical ethnic cleansing. Then there are other empires like Rome who choose to let the vanquished people live and stay in their land. They can keep their religious rights as long as they adopt Roman culture, as long as they submit to Roman government, as long as they'll say Caesar is Lord kind of makes for a more peaceful takeover. And sort of ironically, Rome in some ways is more pluralistic than our secular West. But Nebuchadnezzar, he engages in an imperial policy of forced relocation and re-education. And his idea is that he'll take some people from the culture, take them away, and he wants to eventually reintroduce them back into their native culture with the hope that these re-socialized exiles, re-socialized prisoners of war can, can become influential citizens and representatives of Babylon who will go back home and in turn persuade all the other people in their culture to join in. You know, it's just going to be best for all of us. And so he conquers. And the, the first time that he does this forced deportation and relocation begins in 605. And as we read the accounts in the Old Testament, we see that at this point, Nebuchadnezzar allows Judah to remain intact. He installs another king, basically says, as long as you behave, I'm going to leave you alone. But he begins a process of kind of skimming the cream off the top of the culture. 
He wants to take the best and brightest, especially from the youth, because if he can relocate and re-educate and re-socialize them early on, maybe he won't have to come back and destroy Jerusalem again. Maybe they'll join in with him. And what we see happening in the opening verses of this chapter are a couple of significant things you need to be aware of. Number one, he is destroying their ethnic and cultural identity as he takes away the best and brightest of their youth. Now you need to think about, try to put yourself in this place of how horrifying this is for the nation, for the families, and for the teenagers. These are 14 or 15-year-old boys taken from home, marched across the desert hundreds of miles to the other side of the Fertile Crescent. Just think about the grief and anger of parents. Think about the fear of 14-year-old boys. Nebuchadnezzar does that, but he wants to do more. Verse 2 tells us that he's also destroying Judah's religious and spiritual identity. He robs the temple of its vessels. And for Daniel, this would have been heard something like this. Hey, Daniel, the temple of your God, I'm coming in. I'm taking what I want. So he's conquered the land. And in essence, now he stomps his boot down on the neck of the people even further by by taking, uh, taking away what matters to them spiritually. See, in the ancient world, if you won the war, it not only meant I'm stronger than you are, it meant my God is stronger than your God. It meant you could put a my God beat up your God bumper sticker on your chariot as you drove across the land. It just is a symbol of this ultimate defeat. He's taking the the vessels from the house of God. He's putting them in his God's temple. He's saying your God is weak. Your God is defeated. And that's how everyone would have read the headline in the newspaper back then. God is dead. He can do nothing for you now. And there's some subtle clues about this in the text. Daniel goes out of the way to point it out twice. In verse two, he says that Nebuchadnezzar carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia. He says he put these things in the treasure house of his God. He's just showing us, emphasizing that Nebuchadnezzar is saying without embarrassment, my God is mightier than the God of Israel. And here's the proof. So that's 605. Eight years later, he has to come back and do a second uh, conquering, a second deportation. Uh, This second time in 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar takes away King Jehoiakim to, to Babylon. He takes away the queen mother, the king's wives, all the officials, the historical documents. He takes away all of Jerusalem's elites. He also exiles 7,000 of the best troops, 1,000 of the best craftsmen and artisans. The Bible says all who were strong and fit for war, he says, you're coming with us. And true to form, he again doesn't stop there. He again stomps on the, uh, their religious identity, and this time with greater force. This time he takes all of the temple vessels. He strips away all of the gold that King Solomon had put there. He just takes it all away. Now, In 586, another few years farther on, he has to come back one more time, and this time he finishes the job. This time there's barely anything left. There's not not much really to take. And so this time he slaughters the king's son before the king's eyes, and then he gouges out the king's eyes. Then he burns down everything, the houses, the king's palace, and especially the temple. He just burns it to the ground. All he leaves there are the poor. 
It's basically him saying, these people are worth nothing. You can stay. And so what we see is the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and they are done. There's just nothing left. The only thing that's there, you know, for those of us who grew up in the 70s, is just the dust blowing in the wind. City walls are rubble. The king's a blind prisoner of war. The temple with its holy of holies where God was supposed to dwell, that's just gone, burned to the ground. And what you need to keep in mind, do not forget, is that this is actually one of the lowest points in the entire Bible storyline. Just think about all that God had promised his people. He had promised Abraham descendants like the stars in the sky. He had promised Abraham that the land that he would give to his descendants, they would be there, um, they would be there forever. If you're a Jew, you're asking, well, what does this say about God? And, and don't miss this, it's, it's kind of a real irony. Abraham had essentially been called by God out of the land of Iraq. And now his descendants are being forced to return to where it all started. So where is the promise for the land now, God? And God, what about that promise that your king would rule forever? What about that promise you made that you would dwell in the midst of your people forever? Everything is black. Everything is dark and bleak. See, when Daniel opens, there's just nothing for these chosen people. No nation, no home, no government, no king, no temple, and apparently no God. Just one pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, ruling over all. So here's the question. How do you live in that kind of environment? How do you survive? How do you put your life back together when your house has been burned and the people who killed your family and friends, the people who are mocking your religious beliefs, they are now wanting to educate you in their ways to represent their kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. How do you move on? And how do you process all of that when you're 14 years old? See, you start, this is what I'm saying. This is what Daniel's telling us. You start by accepting God's sovereign faithfulness in exile. You continue to trust that God is sovereign. You, you continue to accept the outworking of his sovereign providence in your circumstances. You believe that he remains faithful to all his people, even when you can't see it, even when it doesn't make sense, even when you don't understand. Now, verse one, in a sense, is all about Nebuchadnezzar. But did you notice the beginning of verse two? You can't Miss this. If your Bible's open, you need to highlight this phrase. You need to circle it, underline it, put it in bold type, whatever you can do to emphasize it. It is the point of the whole chapter, the point of the whole book. Here's the phrase, and the Lord delivered. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Do you see it? It's like this beam of light shining, breaking through the darkness. Where is God? Well, God is where he's always been. God is in control. This word delivered in Hebrew is probably more literally translated gave. Some of, your, some of your translations have it that way, the Lord gave. And we are being told that behind, behind Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance and power is actually the sovereignty of God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know it yet. And by the way, he's gonna find out. He doesn't know it yet, but God is saying here that this powerful king, he only has power because God allows him to. Do you see it? 
Notice these contrasts that are just built in to these first two verses that are, that are there if we pay attention. There's a contrast already in this story between the city of God and the city of Nebuchadnezzar. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So it's Babylon versus Jerusalem, the temple of God versus the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God in Babylonia. Some of you don't have Babylon here. You're looking at something that says the land of Shinar, right? And that's actually more literal translation. The ESV is one of the versions that preserves this. You say, what's the land of Shinar? Well, it's Babylon. And we find out about this for the first time back in the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis chapter 11. And maybe some of you remember that the land of Shinar is actually the location of the Tower of Babel. And it becomes the ancient name for Babylon. And we are being told that from the beginning, this city is symbolic of utter opposition to God. So Shinar is Babylon, city of man organized against city of God. It's just part of the storyline of the Bible from early on. Two rival cities, two rival kingdoms, kingdom of Babylon, kingdom of God, and they come in conflict again and again and again. Daniel is really a tale of two kingdoms in conflict. And by the way, you will never understand life in this world if you don't understand that this is the story underneath all the stories today, everywhere, for all time. Two kingdoms in conflict, the kingdom of man, kingdom of God. It really does explain all in history. Uh, there's a final contrast between the name of Nebuchadnezzar, he's king of Babylon, but then in verse two, it says, the Lord delivered or gave, and this is the name for God. And the name here is not Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God. It's Adonai, which is God, the master, God, the sovereign, God, the king, the one who is in control. And so all of these little clues are telling us that this great conflict is being set up. Nebuchadnezzar here, Adonai here. And we are meant to understand as we read these words that even when the city of man rages, even when it enshrines laws that mock the kingdom of God, even when the city of man has so much power that it destroys the holy of holies in the very temple of God and burns God's city to the ground, even when the city of man is at the very zenith of its power, the Lord delivered, the Lord gave. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is faithful. If you're reading through this chapter, you may want to keep in mind that at every point, major turning point in chapter one, this word gave shows up. Now, if we're, you're reading out of the NIV, it's not as clear because the NIV uses some synonyms to capture the meaning of the Hebrew word. But let me point it out to you so you'll be aware of it. In verse two, Jerusalem falls. We're told the Lord gave them into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Verse 9, after Daniel makes his dietary request, we're told that God gave Daniel favor. Same word in Hebrew. And then in verse 17, when the story is summarized, it says, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and meaning. Three times in Daniel 1, God gave. And the point is so clear. In spite of appearances, even in the worst of times, God is in control. Now, all of that history brings us down to this one life, this 14 or 15-year-old boy named Daniel. And I want you, as we're thinking about God's sovereign faithfulness, I want you to try to picture Daniel in your mind and get an idea of who he is. 
Verses three and four give us a, a fair amount of, of, of what his picture might look like. We, we know he's one of the best and brightest of Israel. We are told he's from the nobility. That means he's from a family of high social status. We're told that he's part of this group without any physical defect. That means he was strikingly handsome. Now, different standards for what's attractive in different ages, even in our day. So I don't know. Uh, We have people of all different age range here this morning. So that means Daniel might have looked like Clark Gable or Paul Newman or Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio or Zac Efron or Justin Bieber. I don't know. Does that kind of cover the gamut for us? You fill the gap in there. He was a good-looking young man. He was also very bright. Verse 4 says he shows aptitude for every kind of learning. He's well-informed, quick to understand. He was qualified to serve in the king's palace. This tells us that he would have had a very high level of what we would call emotional intelligence or people smarts. And we know, we're about to find out, that he was utterly devoted to God. This is Daniel. And if you think about him and you try to put yourself in his shoes, you have to know that he would have had all the dreams that all young men always have, especially men like this. See, back in Judah, if he had stayed in his homeland, he would have had a predictable future. The whole world was in front of him. He would have gone to a great school and and then on to glittering success in whatever field he chose, made a great marriage, lived in a beautiful home, raised an admirable family, occupy a prominent place in the temple. I mean, you just do great things for God and great things for God's people. That's not how it turned out. Not at all. Daniel is going to spend his entire life in a foreign culture. He's going to give his best service to an alien king. He's going to lose all the beauty of his his home culture. He's going to have to speak a foreign language. He's going to live and he's going to die in a place he never wanted to be. He will never go home. Now You see also in verse 7 that he even loses his name. And actually this This name deal is quite significant. Daniel and his three friends are given new names. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but you should pay attention when you're reading the Old Testament. Anytime you see a name ending in E-L or A-H or I-A-H, there's a clue that this is a name that has reference to God in it. And in the case here, it's either the little syllable E-L, Daniel or Mishael, that's from Elohim, or the syllable uh, I-A-H, Hananiah, Azariah, that is signaling the name of Yahweh. These names for these young men reminded them that they belonged to God. And there was a reason that Nebuchadnezzar was giving them new names. It was his way of saying, you have a new king now. You belong to me now. Allow Babylon to define your identity. Just think about that. Daniel's name meant the Lord will judge. What a great name. See, that means that throughout his whole life, every time Daniel heard his name spoken, it was a reminder, the Lord will set things right. The Lord will judge. The Lord will see that justice is done. His very name had this promise every time he heard it. But now he's not Daniel anymore. The Lord was not setting things right. In fact, it looked like his whole promise was shattered. We're gonna see more about how Daniel accepted God's sovereign faithfulness in the weeks ahead. 
But it is clear from his life that he truly did. And this is part of what enabled him to thrive, even in exile. The Daniel plan continues, continues on. The second thing we see is that we are to resolve to maintain our identity in exile. In many ways, uh, verse 8 is kind of the hinge point of this chapter, really even of the entire book of Daniel. Everything sort of turns here. If you read the first seven verses carefully up to this point, you will notice it is the Babylonians who are determining everything. Up to this point, they've been in the driver's seat. So Nebuchadnezzar determines to conquer Israel. He determines to cart off the most sacred objects of the culture and its most promising citizens. He determines to enroll uh, these young men in his leadership academy. He decides on the curriculum. The dean of the school determines their new identities and he determines the menu. They're gonna be fed rich food and wine from the king's table. Just think about this. The easiest thing in all the world would have been for Daniel to feel like he was just a passive victim overwhelmed by forces way, way too big for him. But from verse eight on, the initiative in this story shifts. And the writer shows this in a very artful, very colorful way. It's kind of hard to pick up in most translations. But in the Hebrew text, the same verb gets repeated three times. A kind of literal rendering of verse 7 would be the chief of staff determined new names for them. He determined on Belteshazzar for Daniel and so on. And then in verse 8, but Daniel determined not to defile himself with rich food. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. It's the same verb. But this time, Daniel is determining. Daniel the captive. Daniel, this Daniel makes a decision. And the writer is using a very strong word. You might translate it, Daniel resolved in his heart, the very core of his being, that he would honor God, that he would not defile himself. He just decides. And now he has to take action. And so he goes to the dean of the school to talk about the menu. And he says that everyone, well, they're being fed like, you know, roast beef and eggs and cheese. Maybe they're on the paleo diet. I don't know. But Daniel, he wants to go vegan or something like that. And we don't really know why this food would defile Daniel. We're not really told. Maybe it violates ceremonial laws, the laws of kosher. Maybe this food had been offered to idols. We're not really told why. It's not really clear. But it is clear that Daniel believed that he needed to draw a line. And you need to be aware of how much courage this took on Daniel's part. Remember where he is. Remember who Nebuchadnezzar was. Nebuchadnezzar was not a leader who cut people a lot of slack. In fact, we can read about it in other parts of the historical accounts of the Old Testament in 2 Kings 25 uh, the king that he had installed as a puppet king named Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And so he comes back again. He captures Zedekiah's family. He has all of Zedekiah's sons killed right in front of Zedekiah. And then he gouges out Zedekiah's eyes. So that the last thing this man ever sees are his entire family being slaughtered. See, you've probably heard of leaders who, you know, have hands on or hands-off management styles, right? Well, Nebuchadnezzar had a heads-off management style. That's how he rolled. If people crossed him, he cut their heads off. 
mean, how many of you have had a tough boss? I mean, how many of you have had a tough boss, a boss so tough that when he terminated people, he actually terminated them? That's the kind of thing we're talking about. That's who Daniel's dealing with here. But in spite of this, Daniel determines something. Daniel remembers his name. Daniel does not see himself as the helpless pawn of circumstances beyond his control. Daniel resolves in his heart and he just shows magnificent courage and initiative. And then we see his wisdom. And, and you know, people, people who, who are willing to follow God courageously, they're kind of this way. They resolve that they will honor God. And then, then they figure out whatever it takes to do that. They do not accept as an excuse that they just live under forces too powerful for them to control. See, this will take effort on Daniel's part. He goes to the dean of the school and he makes this request. And you may have noticed the dean gives kind of an ambivalent answer. We, we know that, that this man likes Daniel because God has given Daniel favor in his eyes. But he says, if I say yes to you, you're going to end up looking weak and the king's going to take my head off. That's his answer. Now, at this point, we start to see Daniel's persistence. We start to see his street smarts. Daniel thinks, well, you know, that's not exactly a yes but it's also not exactly a no. And so he goes to someone, you know, the guard down at the next level on the org chart, and he proposes an experiment. He says, please let us try this new diet for 10 days, and then you be the judge. You see, he's exercising this amazing initiative and courage and faith that God is going to act, that God is going to work, and God does. In fact, we, we see in verse 16 that the guard is so impressed with what happens to Daniel and his friends that he takes everyone's steak away and he puts the whole school onto the veggie platter and all the people in the school hate Daniel at this point. <laughs> Daniel actually, though, goes to the head of the class. He becomes the valedictorian. But don't miss, this only happens because when everything looked like it was lost, Daniel resolved that he would not get tangled up with anything that would cause him to betray his deepest values, cause him to lose his identity, that he would matter God, honor God no matter what. Let me ask you today, it's a question for you. Is there anywhere in your life today that you are giving your identity away to Babylon? Anywhere, anywhere at work, anywhere at your home, anywhere in your private life? Is there any area of compromise in your life where you're doing things and the truth is you know it? It's not what God has told you to do. You're actually disobeying God. The Bible calls that sin. Is there anywhere in your life? That's today, but I want to also think about the future because this book has, has bigger ramifications. In the days ahead, none of us knows where our culture is going to go, but I think it's safe to say that in the days ahead, our culture is going to challenge us, those of us who name the name of Christ, in more and more ways, in greater and greater ways, to give up our identity, to not follow Christ fully. Here's the question. In days ahead, will you be ready to honor God no matter what? Will you be ready to maintain your identity as a Christ follower no matter what? 
See, some of you have never resolved to follow God fully. You need to do that today. You need to resolve to maintain your identity in exile. Here's the third thing we see in the Daniel plan. Write this down. Trust God to honor our faithfulness in exile. Verses 17 through 21 say, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, there is so much about these young men's faithfulness that we can see in this book that we're going to see in the weeks ahead. Today, I just want to point out one thing, and I don't have a slide for it, so you need to write it down. Write this down now. They make a commitment to live in authentic community. They make a commitment to live in authentic community. These four teenagers realize that it's a life or death deal. And what we see in our terms today in this book is a little small group that Daniel forms with his friends. And we're going to see these four again. And they're really just a a kind of, of little small group. I've already referred to the assault against their identity. I want you to see it fully and clearly. I want you to look for a moment at their names and then how the new names they were given undercuts and assaults the identity they had in God. Daniel means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel protects my life. That's one of their gods. You could say Baal here to put it on more familiar terms. So Baal's the one who's gonna take care of you now, Daniel. That's what this name is meant to say. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious, but Shadrach means command of Aku, another one of their gods. Mishael means who is like God. Meshach means who is like Aku. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. Yahweh's the one you depend on. Now, Abednego means you're a servant of Nebo. Every one of these names was changed to to go right at the heart of their identity as followers of God. And in the face of this assault against who they knew God had called them to be, these four young men knew that they had to live together in real community. And so they would go through this school together. They surely studied and prayed and faced decisions together. One day, as we're going to see, they're going to face the furnace together. One day, they would help each other to rule together. And in actuality, don't miss this, this one small group of devoted believers in God are going to change the course of world history, change the course of a nation. What I want you to think about is this. When you live in Babylon, and we all live in Babylon, we always have. When we live in Babylon, you will not survive and thrive outside community. I was reading about some of the research surrounding people who go through extremely difficult circumstances like captivity. And uh, Julius Siegel, who's one of the primary researchers in this area, writes about a story that took place during the Vietnam War. Here's what he says. Few captives suffered more than Vice Admiral James Stockdale, who served 2,714 days as a POW in Vietnam. 
On one occasion, his captor shackled his legs and arms and left him in glaring sunshine three blistering days while guards beat him repeatedly to keep him from sleeping. After one beating, Stockdale heard a towel snapping out in a code that the POWs had devised uh, with a message he would never forget. It was five letters, G-B-U-J-S. God bless you, Jim Stockdale. You see, for those POWs, just the briefest experiences of community, of being connected, became literally a life or death deal. And their devotion and their ingenuity to making community happen, I mean, it took place in spite of unbelievable obstacles. It just defies belief. You may kind of think I'm making this up, but I'm not. He writes, Uh, that if one man walked by another cell, he would drag his sandals by in a code to send a message. Men would send messages to their comrades through noises they made, shaking out their blankets or belching or snoring or blowing their noses or bodily noises I will not name in church but are mastered normally by 10-year-old boys. And this is so ironic to me. When community is difficult, people will move heaven and earth and they will risk their lives for just a moment of it. But when it's so readily, freely available, so many of us don't even bother. See, community, deep friendship, spiritual intimacy never comes easy. You always have to fight for those things. And so many times in my 30 years as a pastor, I have talked to someone who's struggling with a difficult problem. And you've heard me tell you this before. I often will ask them, are you in community? Do you have a small group of trusted Christian brothers and sisters to support you and help you and pray for you and give you wisdom? And so many times they will tell me, well, no. I tried once, but it didn't work out. And I usually tell them, well, try again. Try again. Try as often as you need to try. Make time for it. And together with people, pray and learn and grow and reach out. You know, some of you here today are small group leaders. You need to be reminded today that the people in your group, they live in Babylon just like you. They get beaten up all the time. And maybe some of them are getting ready to give up. Maybe one of them is sitting right next to you. See, I wonder if you have any idea what a difference it makes when you take the time to say to someone, God bless you. I care about you. You matter to me. Your life counts. See, people need to hear the code, not just hostages and POWs. And so do not let anyone out of this room without letting them hear from you. I'm glad you're here. You matter to me. Don't give up because we all need authentic community. We all need authentic community. In this last paragraph, we see God honoring Daniel and his friends in their faithfulness. We see as they trust God in these matters in exile, that God begins to elevate them to positions of influence, that God puts them in a place in the culture where they can have a strategic impact on the Babylonians. We see that God's honoring them leads to Daniel and his friends excelling their peers. I mean, they not only look good, they, they, they and perform as well as their peers. They go beyond them when the test comes. Friends, God is sovereign. 
God is always faithful over all our circumstances and he will be faithful to us as we honor him and as we walk with him in integrity and in righteousness and in holiness. Now we're gonna see in the next few weeks more about how God was using these initial experiences in exile to prepare them for future tests. But I wanna leave you with just one thing. One little verse at the very end of this chapter, verse 21, you might have skipped over. You might not have paid much attention to it, but you need to know what you're being told here. It says there's three words um, that you might wanna underline here. And Daniel remained there. Actually, that's four words. I meant the second, third, and fourth words. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, if you want to write something down in your Bible or in your notes about that, the first year of King Cyrus was 539 BC. What that is telling us is that Daniel will never go home. Daniel will spend his entire life in exile, honoring God, maintaining his identity as a follower of God, serving God for the rest of his life. He goes into exile as a 14 or 15 year old boy, 539 BC. He's somewhere probably into his 80s. He's going to spend his whole life in this place. But God's going to bless him and God's going to use him. And God can do the same in our lives as well. I want to encourage you now just to bow your heads and to pray. And as you pray, I want to encourage you to ask God what he wants you to hear from this chapter in the book of Daniel, what he's saying to you today. And then I want to encourage you to have the courage of Daniel to carry it out, to do whatever God tells you to do. Father God, we give you thanks today for your goodness to us, Lord. And Lord, we need to admit to you that most of us have it in our lives so much easier than anything Daniel ever experienced. And we need to be aware of our blessings and give you thanks for them, Father. And Lord, as we, we face challenges in our culture, help us to, to live in a way that honors you, that maintains the identity that you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ. Give us the courage of Daniel. Help us to know, Father, that you never leave us, that you're always with us, you're always in control. You always have a purpose. Father, I want to pray also for anyone who's here this morning who has not yet come into a relationship with you. They do not know you through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, maybe they're, they're here exploring and wondering and asking questions. Lord, would you speak to them today? Would you help them to see and experience, sense, your presence and your power and your goodness and your beauty. Lord, will you open their hearts, open their eyes to see you and the love you have for them in your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for the sins of the world. Lord, I ask that you would grant them repentance and faith that they might meet you and come to you and know you for your honor and for your glory. Lord, we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people together say, amen.